This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listener land, welcome back to episode number 46 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back again this week, and we've got Joe back with us along with Steve. What's up, guys? Hey, hey how guys. you doing, Tuck? Best of Masters is back, and uh, we've got some great topics this week, and uh, we've got a lot of topics, actually. So why don't we, uh, why don't we jump right into it, Steve-O? What do we got on the docket today to chat about? Cool. Well, let's uh, let's get right into it. You know, a lot of the posts that have been coming up on Masters have been addressing timelines. Obviously, appraisals has been huge in that. So our first topic is actually a compilation of a couple different posts. One was by Jenny Turner, and then the other was by Amy Muncie. Both of them, as you can imagine, had a bunch of comments, and hence the reason it's the best of Masters and we're discussing it. Jenny Turner's was more about cautioning your buyers that if you do not have a realistic close date, they could be risking their earnest money because technically the finance contingency doesn't protect you if you don't close on time. It protects you if you can't close. There is a difference. And so there was a lot of comments about that. Amy Muncie was on the same page. She was just basically saying, Agents out there, you should not just be writing the same old 30-day closes in this environment and throwing that to your lender and being surprised when they are not able to perform on that. Tucker, what are you seeing and hearing out there? And I'll kind of share some of my input and thoughts that we've sure. been observing as well. Yeah, I mean, we we talked briefly right before we got on the air. I think it's it's a timely post because we did have Travis from Directors on a couple of weeks ago, and I know you kind of, uh, you know, gave me some new information since having that. But I think that they said they were averaging right around 35 days for their transactions as of two weeks ago for whatever that previous month, maybe June 15th to July 15th. I think that's what they do their numbers from. So they were at about 35 days then. What we did talk about is that, you know, interest rates are historically low. I think uh, I'm not following it exactly, but uh, they're low enough to spur another little mini refi boom, I guess, that might be occurring over the course of the last 30 days which is pushing out timelines. So I haven't, you know, personally battled with this too much. The only battle I've had lately in terms of, of closing is just ill-equipped appraisers <laughs> and not so much ones that are, uh, you know, just not able to get to a report in time. So, you know, personally, I haven't seen, you know, there, one of the posts said that they were, uh, what, almost six weeks and then they needed an extension on top of that. So I, I don't know. There's so much between the lines there of what could happen as to why you can't close something in six weeks. I mean, six weeks is you know, what, 45 days. So, you know, to me, that seems like that should still be realistic to be able to get that. You know, director said they were 35 days two weeks ago. Let's say they bump it up to 45 with the refi boom. I mean, I, I don't know. What what do you think? What are you seeing? You, I mean, you've got a lot more transactions, obviously, that you're a party to than myself. So I'd be interested to see or hear what you're seeing out there right now. Yeah, well, I actually, I agree with this, believe it or not. We just had a buyer's meeting yesterday with my team and we were talking about this. I, things have changed dramatically in the last 30 days, in my opinion. 
things have been slow for a while, but I feel like they've hit a whole new level since the whole issue with Brexit causing a flight to safety in our bond market, which has caused interest rates from what I understand. And I, I haven't looked specifically, but I was talking to one of my lenders and from what I understand, I think they're at all time lows, which you can imagine. I mean, we've had low, we've been talking about low interest rates for, you know, 10 plus years, but to be at an all time low, you can imagine what that does to the refinance market. And by the way, people, anytime you refinance, guess what else you need on your house? You need an appraisal. And what? guess where we have our problems and our bottleneck in our industry is with the appraisal process. My lender mentioned that they have noticed here in the past few weeks that appraisers, regardless of the rush fee, and she said they're throwing out some huge numbers for rush fees, they are just getting ignored and, and even getting the order received by the appraiser. So one order, she said, took two weeks just to get an appraiser to accept it. She said a lot of these appraisers are just cherry picking. There's just not enough appraisers. And so in addition to charging exorbitant rush fees, which are absolutely the norm now, they're not the exception, they're the norm, and taking a long time, there's actually situations where these appraisers aren't even taking jobs at all because they're not cookie cutter, clean, easy to comp out, quick turn time houses. They're more complex houses, more unique properties. I was kind of laughing to myself and, and when we were talking about this, I was like, it's just unfathomable to us as agents. Imagine if there was a scenario where consumers were calling us realtors to list their houses and we're not calling them back. And they're leaving messages going, look, I'll let you make 8%. I'll let you make 9%. What's it take? Call me back. Call me back. I mean, you know, you you laugh at that that idea, but that is absolutely what is happening on the appraisal side of things right now, it feels like. So I have instructed my, my team to really start thinking about six-week closes. Unless the, the stars align somehow with a scenario, they really should be going 45 days out. The challenge there that we talked about is sometimes you're in competitive situations and sometimes the seller doesn't get it. And truth be told, sometimes the listing agent may not explain it. So if you have two equal offers and one has a 30 day close and the other has a 45 day close or even a say longer, you could see where the seller would be like, well, gosh, I'm going to go with this one because it's quicker. But Really, is it quicker or is the person just not being upfront about how they're going to perform and they're going to request an extension later? So there is challenges in that. And and I think that requires some good communication on the buyer's agents up front to say, look, we're ready to close. We would do it in 30 days. Maybe there's a chance of it. But, you know, given the timelines of things that we don't control, such as appraisals, we have a 45 day close on here. What about you, Joe? What do you think? Well, I'm going to be... Uh kind of brief and to the point, you know, I, I love Jenny Turner and Amy Muncie and they've been around for a while and they're great people. And they, they posted two days of each other in July. So they're, they're in the best of masters for July. I can tell you that we have two or three posts a month that <laughs> talk about, you know, the appraisers are backed up. The VA appraisers are backed up. The inspectors are backed up. The contractors are, are backed up. So to look at both of these threads, which are very much the same thing, one common thread that holds true 
is you need to have great communication amongst all parties. The realtors, the buyer and the seller, you have to have outstanding communication. You have to have realistic timelines and expectations. And from the listing side, they need to coach their sellers. From the selling side, they need to coach the buyers. And everyone has to have a little bit of flexibility as well and be logical about the whole thing. And if you look at it logically, I mean, you need to do a couple things to help everybody get a win at the end. And for example, if you have an accepted offer, order the appraisal the next day. Order the all the professional inspections the very next day. It's going to take them two, three weeks. Who knows how long it's going to take. Get that out of the way immediately because you're going to need it. Have a little bit of forward thinking, right? If you have a an old house or it's a country property, you got to consider the con- condition of the house and, and what you're selling and the potential pitfalls. So if you are listing a house for a seller, it's a country property, maybe get the septic pumped and inspected as a pre-listing thing. Maybe have a pre-listing inspection. Maybe have your HVAC serviced. And that way, you can do it at your leisure. You can provide it to the buyer, and you don't have to fit it into that window of accepted offer to the closing date. The other thing that I'm a big fan of is if the professional inspection shows that there's some safety or structural hazards and you need to negotiate repairs, take care of it with a credit. I mean, to try and get a contractor there and you know fix everything to your liking and have it reinspected and then get the appraiser there after that, take care of it with the credit. It's like, look, there's dry rot on the deck. We got three bids and it's 1800 bucks. Here's 1800 bucks. Knock yourself out. And that way you don't have to lump one more thing on top of a transaction in your timelines. So that's my two cents on how to go about this and speed the timeline. Yeah, I want to add one more thing to, I mean, not add, I want to applaud you, Joe, for something you said that order the appraisal right away. Agents out there, if you are doing that same old tactic of waiting until you are past the inspection contingency to order the appraisal, you have not adapted to the current market we are in. That is not how you play this market. You have got to immediately order the appraisal. (laughs) As I noted, I mean, chances are by the time you get to the appraisal contingency sign-off, it may not even have been accepted by an appraiser yet. And if it has been accepted, it's on the books another week or two out. So you've got to order those appraisals right away. I think that's good advice. One last thing is when I talk about being logical, there's nothing worse than you submitting an offer to a listing agent in a multiple offer situation and your offer has a realistic timeline and they accept someone else's offer because it's a quicker close but not realistic whatsoever. So you put a 45-day close, 50-day close, it seems to be realistic. Someone else with the same offer goes in with a 25-day close that there's not a snowball chance in hell it will ever happen. There's a lot of educating the listing brokers and them understanding the timelines and expectations and coaching their sellers. So 
I think that's a big part of it. Listing agents shouldn't be putting their thumb on people saying, hey, look, let's speed this up. Let's get the, this isn't a horse race. The idea is get your house sold for the most money you can. And we want it to get to the end zone. And it's like a, a Chinese dinner, right? Everyone gets a cookie at the end. It doesn't matter how long it takes. So if we can get the get it done quickly out of everybody's mindset and like, let's get it done right, then that will go a long ways. Hey, so let's move on to the next one, guys. So the next one was posted by Jason Nichols, July 26th. And this one was about directional signs. It was a pretty interesting post. I, I'll touch on it here in a little bit. But basically, it was saying, I usually keep my opinion to myself, but he showed a picture of a neighborhood where there were several directional signs. I, I will say it was an unfair picture for that one neighborhood with some ugly directional signs. There's probably a lot better directional signs out there. And then he said, in today's day and age, most consumers, and I say most, have GPS in the internet. As I run by these signs, it really just makes me look at them as cluttered my neighborhood. I don't use these signs myself in my business. And so I'm just curious, do you think these help realtors' businesses enough that cluttering up a neighborhood is still a good practice? Or do you think it makes realtors look bad for not caring about the appearance of the neighborhood? So, Joe, you want to go into your opinion on that? Yeah, so... I don't use a lot of directional signs. I think they look junky. It's bad enough that it's election year. There's a lot of stuff out there. I understand that in some scenarios, when you have flag lots or rural property or, or something, it's absolutely needed. And, you know, have a little bit of respect. If you're going to pound it in someone's yard, you know, ask permission. When the house goes pending or when it's sold, I mean, take the darn thing down. I have to agree and disagree with uh, Jason Nichols. I don't like the looks of them. I mean, ideally, if I never saw any sign the rest of my life advertising something, that would be great, <laughs> even though they're they're needed. But, you know, you got to match the the skill level, communication level, and means of media for everybody. I guarantee you that, you know, some 75-year-old person driving their Cadillac down the road, isn't going to jump out of their car and do a QR code scanner on a permaflyer. And I guarantee you those same people don't have navigation getting them to this property. So you got to kind of match the audience. So I think directional signs have a purpose. Like if I'm listing a condo in the Pearl, I'm going to have a QR code. I'm going to have some other things. If I'm in a retirement community, I'm going to put paper flyers out there because that's what they can do. Their technology allows them to read a paper flyer but not scan QR codes. So I think him stating that everybody has GPS and can get there and we don't need these signs is, is not completely accurate, but I'm not a big fan of junking up the neighborhood. So if you use them, use them and respect your neighbors. Oh, well, I agree with you on some of it. We actually disagree a lot on this one. <laughs> but I mean, you definitely don't want to make a neighborhood look worse. And I think a lot of that comes down to the branding and the, and the appearance of your directionals, the number of them you put out there. There was some great comments here, like where somebody said, if I see a directional on one corner, I'll go to the other corner and put it there. I won't put you know five of them on one corner. Obviously, removing them 
at the end of your listing. My experience, though, people, is that you don't need to remove them. They disappear. <laughs> that's just uh, that's yeah. just the world of directionals. They have a tendency to disappear. So more often than not, as we're going back out to the listing in the weeks and weeks that, that follow as it's pending and then before as it's eventually sold, somebody has already removed them on our behalf. And that's just the nature of the beast there. I like directionals. I use them. I commented on this a little bit. I thought it was a little dismissive, some of these comments. I felt like it was a little quick to play the trumpet of this is a dinosaur. GPS has automatically removed these. Directionals serve multiple purposes, in my opinion. I think they're a huge branding play. The thing about a yard sign, yard signs look great and we all understand. I don't think anyone questions the value of having a yard sign. But the thing is, a yard sign is oftentimes is on a in a quiet yard, you know, several streets away from a busy road. A directional is an opportunity to put a sign on that busy road with your name, your brand, your look. And every car that passes by can see you there. And somebody who lives 10 blocks the other way now knows you have a listing there. Would they have known you had a listing there otherwise? I mean, what if they're not even in the market yet? What if they're not in the market to sell yet? So I see this from a completely different angle there. The other thing I kind of mentioned was, look, there's a reason why every time you're on you know, I-5 and you take the exit ramp, that you see signs that say Taco Bell's to the right, Chevron's to the left. I mean, we all have GPS, but sometimes the good old-fashioned w- way of doing things is is pretty effective. And, and I don't see that definitively changing across the board just because we have other ways of doing things. So I thought, it was a, I thought it was a little bit dismissive and simplistic to just assume because technology's come along that suddenly we don't – some of the you know tried and proven ways of doing things from years past – no longer apply. And I I saw some comments that kind of echoed that as well. So Tucker, you got anything to say on that one? Yeah, I'll just top it off real quick and then we can go on to the next one. I will say I agree with both of you guys, but the one thing, I mean, I think you're fighting an uphill battle here, Steve, because for every guy like you, there's 10 assholes, you know? (laughs) And so the first house I ever bought was on the corner of Green Tree and South Shore in Lake Oswego back in 2002. And without fail, Every single weekend, some a-hole realtor would stop right in front of my house and pound a sign into my front yard with a directional on it every weekend. And it was a different one every time. And it's like Joe said, it's about being respectful, right? If you're going to pound a sign in somebody's yard, usually the first thing you should probably do is ask them. But it was just like second nature to just stop real quick, er, hop out, bang, 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 hop back in, take off. And it literally happened every single weekend. And so I agree with, with Joe in that sense, and I and I get what this guy, Jason, saying. You know, that annoyed me back then, and it annoys me now thinking about it. But, you know, to use it properly, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand it. But the problem is for every one person that uses it properly, there's nine that don't. And so I mm-hmm. think that's why there's probably a lot of negative sentiment in that post. So. I fully agree with that. I fully agree Those, with that. Uh, and it makes it tough to have these debates because – you're debating on behalf of the nine that are using it wrong. I agree. I fully agree. We're going to also come into that, you know, on some of these other topics we have too. Agreed. I'm curious if those directional signs disappeared out of your yard mysteriously. They did disappear mysteriously most of uh-huh. the time. So I was a little younger and full of uh, quite a bit more piss and vinegar back then. So, you know, that they disappeared pretty quick. But anyway, on to the next post. Hey, Joe, you want to introduce the next one about referral fees with other people from other industries? Oh, yeah. Okay. So this was posted by Legion Anders, July 21st. And 
basically uh, his post is about it's only legal to give referral fees through your company to other licensed brokers in the United States. And why shouldn't we open this up to other affiliated business partners such as attorneys and money managers and what's proven to be good sources of business to realtors? How come we don't go through these channels? And it was a heated one. I, I can't say I read every single comment, but it's pretty powerful. Why don't you give your two cents? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of this at all. I feel like as agents, we are already, you know, spend a lot of money in our business. I mean, granted, it's, we understand why we give a referral fee to another realtor because they know the, the business and they vetted the client oftentimes and they're a professional industry and it's just a good courtesy to give them a referral fee. So there's that. Now go to the opposite extreme. Why don't we give it to Joe Schmo who sends us his who sends us his mom to buy a house with us? Well, can you imagine the chaos our industry would be in if it was allowed to give a referral fee to anyone? Now that's not what Legion was was advocating. I want to be real clear here. But if we are giving a referral fee to just anybody and everybody, I mean, it would it would almost turn into an auction process and it would just it would just be incredibly, incredibly problematic. There would also be a lot of I think there would be ethical issues that could come from that as well with regards to a lot of things that could happen. What he was advocating was other professionals giving us referrals and getting a referral fee. And I think he specifically said, oh, CPAs, financial advisors, retirement communities. Now, if I'm not mistaken, when he, I read this and I read a lot of these posts, I think he had a specific need. Like he was going after retirement communities or he works with retirement communities. And so he really felt it would help him in that regards. And, and I get that. However, we don't all work with those professionals. And so, you know, I think he was talking about lobbying for, you know, a change in the legislature about this. It's easy to have a specific need in your business and, and think that, well, legislature should make a change so that I have a better scenario in my within my business. But unfortunately, I don't see this as being a good thing. You know, a couple things that I saw posted, Barbara Roach, who's with our company, she made an excellent point. She said, you know, I refer my dentist, I refer various other service providers. I do it because they do a great job. I don't expect them to give me something in return. I just don't see it being a good thing. I And part of it too, where would you draw the line? I mean, how do you say, okay, this guy works at a retirement community, you know, at the front desk so I can give him a referral fee. Well, what if the dishwasher wants a referral fee? I mean, they still work for the retirement community. So it's incredibly problematic. And And if you start to go down that path, I would be gravely concerned that pretty soon we're giving referral fees to anybody and everybody. And that would just, it would commoditize our business. It would almost make it like one of these Amway or one of these multi-level things because we'd suddenly have, I think it was even mentioned in here, we'd have people bird dogging. I mean, there'd be people running around bird dogging deals and trying to get, you know, you'll give me 500 for this one. Who's going to give me 700? Oh, okay. Who's going to give me a thousand? And it just, it would be insane. So what do you guys think? Joe, I'm curious your take on this one. Well, so Personally speaking, I give referrals out to people solely based on being professional, honest, and knowledgeable, and treating these people with the best care, whether I get money or not. My name's on it. You know, if someone asks my advice, I'm going to put them in touch with someone. 
And that someone I put them in touch with better give them VIP service because I'm the one that recommended them. So if I can't say that someone walks on water, then I just I won't recommend anybody. So I think that's first and foremost. I think if you open this up to giving referral fees to attorneys and CPAs and the long list of people that are affiliates to our business, I think it's going to screw up the integrity of what we're really doing, much like the bird dogging and the go to the highest bidder. And there's just some things that you don't do, right? You don't hire a roof inspector who also replaces roofs, right? Because they're going to go up there and say, oh my gosh, your roof is shot. Hey, here's a bid to replace your roof. You hey, don't but don't know. we hire sewer scope guys that also do sewer scope work? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, just playing devil's advocate, you know. Yeah, it's uh, you know you don't want it too close. And for the Yelp reviews, for that matter, you know, you read these Yelp reviews. How do you know you trust those? Someone can say Nikon cameras suck. Signed, Bob at CanonCamera.com. You know, <laughs> it's it's where's the motivation? Follow the money. That's what the detectives say. So. I understand realtor to realtor referrals. If I'm in Lake Oswego and there's a property in Carlton, I'm going to refer it to somebody who can do the same thing I do, but they might be better positioned to work that area. I get realtor to realtor, but there's no line in the sand where you can say, hey, you know, we should be paying attorneys and CPAs and all these other people because basically, Everybody is either a prospective client for you or they're a cheerleader for you. So I would be given referral fees to absolutely every business that came to me, not organically, but recommended by someone. And I think that would just be a rat nest. What do yeah, you think? I, think? I think this is really just a slippery slope issue, as you guys have kind of alluded to. And in other ways, I think that where does it stop, right? That's the big problem. And I think that once you open up this door, you open it up to a lot of potential problems. The bird dogging thing would become an entire industry. It would really just, I think it would cheapen a lot of the industry in terms of lead generation and, and client acquisition. And I just don't think it would be good overall. Now, under the surface, are there kickbacks and things like that that happen? Sure, I don't want you guys to talk about it because you're agents, but of course it happens to some extent. It's the way the world works. But on the surface, if you're able to give anybody and everybody a referral fee that refers a client, I just don't think that's the way to go. I mean, just for example, my CPA, my folks CPA sucks, and my CPA is my old college roommate. And so my old college roommate doesn't like to do parents of his friends because it's an awkward relationship or it's just an unnecessary relationship. He's busy enough. He doesn't need those clients. So I said, hey, who would you recommend that they go talk to because their CPA sucks? And he gave me a list of two people and they ended up using one. You know, so it's similar to like what Joe said. If you're good at what you do, right, people are your cheerleaders. They refer people to you because they want you to take care of them. And so I think that having things set up the way they are right now, it maintains the integrity of the business. And I think that that's the right way to do it. Well said. Well said. Moving on to the last one, guys. We saved the best for last. This one had the most comments of anything else posted in the last month. It also had the most likes. I'm counting about 117 likes here. It was posted July 13th by Kristen Rader. It says, struggling with the fact that we are pretty much the only industry that brags about how much money we make on Facebook. Humble brags, I'm so tired after selling five homes this week. Outright brags, took my 20th listing this quarter. 
down to agents actually posting pics of their GCI checks. Doctors don't brag about saving people. Intel employees don't post about their bonus raise or new grade level. Even car salesmen don't throw their numbers on social media. So why do realtors feel it is okay? It is embarrassing when your colleagues do it. Discuss. Joe, you get to go first. <laughs> well, uh, I served on the board of directors for uh, PMAR for Masters Circle. And when I started serving with them, it was called the Million Dollar Club. And I, I served there for four or five years. And we talked exactly about this topic. Uh, million Dollar Club didn't make sense anymore. It was tied to volume. And we since changed it to Master's Circle. But if you look at our industry where everyone promotes their number one or the top 1% or this, that, and the other, it's kind of hard to have really a benchmark to know how good someone is or isn't. So some people sort of have the idea that what we can quantify is volume-based. You either did over $10 million in production that year or you didn't. You know, you did over $5 million in production or you didn't. So that was the argument that that was the only measuring stick of someone having acceptance in a club or a measure of how good they are. Personally, I have a ton of designations. I don't promote them really anywhere. I don't talk about my volume. I don't talk about the clubs I've been affiliated with. I think there's a higher level where you don't need to do that. And it's nauseating to find out that people do talk about how many houses they list and sell and their production. And there's always like a, a subtle brag or sometimes not so subtle about, you know, how they're number one in their own fan club. But in their mind, they think that I'm telling the world how good I am. This is going to get me more business. I myself like to think of the higher level, like LeBron James doesn't run around and tell you how many times he's been MVP and he doesn't regurgitate his stats all the time. He's just awesome, you know? And, and Are you sure about that? On the court. So uh, anyway, I don't think we need to do that. And likewise, and this is a little off topic, but some of the real estate companies, we all get bombarded with their prospecting emails when they say, hey, here's our fees, and they completely are transparent with, here's our fees, and we don't charge this and don't charge that. I see that as the same thing. I think people bragging about their volume and production and companies being super transparent about what they charge, it cheapens everything. So in a perfect world, I don't care what someone did for volume. I mean, you could do $30 million in volume and not break $100,000 in income, depending on how you structure it. So I don't really care. I don't think the public really cares. It's uh, just one of those things that people uh, put up with, like when people constantly bombard Facebook with kids' photos every two hours. You know, here's my kid taking a nap. Here's my kid eating carrots for the first time. Here's my kid doing this. We just skip past it and hope that it goes away soon. So that's my two cents. It's true. Doctors and lawyers don't brag about how much money they make and how much business they do. And I want to raise the bar and have us be looked at as 
a professional industry and not I'm sorry for the used car salesman out there, but I don't want to be the used car salesman, gitchy guy. I want to have a professional level. And I think all of this bragging is just ridiculous. Yeah. So I really, really see both sides of this debate. And I truly think this is one of those subjects, like so many in life, where a balanced approach is required. Here's the thing. We are self-promoters. We have to be in this business. I don't know the last time a doctor or an Intel employee had to doctors potentially if they own their own practice, but you know, a doctor in a hospital definitely doesn't have to be a self promoter. So I think there's a little bit of an unfair comparison there. And that was mentioned in one of these comments. There were so many good comments on this one, guys on both sides of it. And again, I don't think either one side is correct. I think you just in our industry, you, you touched on this, Joe, if you're comparing teachers, it's really, really hard to say which teacher is better. If you're looking at police officers, it's difficult to say which police officer is better. But in our industry, there is a clear measuring stick. It's the numbers don't lie. So it does make it a little bit easier and more likely to compare numbers versus somebody else, such as those other professions. Now, should you do that in a blatant Donald Trump-esque type manner? Absolutely, freaking lutely not. Should you ever post a paycheck on Facebook? I see no value. That's not something you do trying to get more business and to promote yourself and to, to show the world that you're good at what you do, you enjoy what you do, and, and you want to help whoever is out there. That's just being arrogant and and there's there's no room for that, and, and it's it's laughable. And I, I think that is what I took from this post as being what this post was against, and I hope so. If you go too far in the other extreme, though, guys, I think it's problematic. If, if you become so timid and so shy about talking about how you help people sell houses or how you love what you do or how that you're even good at what you do – you're going to have very little business and, and you're not going to be in the masters for very long because you're not going to be in business for very long. So, you know, there's a reason, a couple other things I thought to myself. I mean, look, every time you drive by McDonald's, it says 900 billion served. They're not a stupid company. I mean, they're saying, look, we have a product and it's been appreciated by a lot of people. So to blatantly put out in this post, you should never talk about how many homes you sold. It was even mentioned by somebody what do you say when you're at a listing appointment and the person asks how many homes you sold last year? And somebody kind of came out with, a, well, I just tell them I sell a lot of homes or, or I sell homes and I don't need to give you the specific number. Well, you're not going to get that listing appointment. So that's probably not your best approach. Different people have different compasses and different ways of approaching both you know, their business and their personal comfort level with themselves and their self-awareness. I think, and I saw this in this post and in the thread, I liked it. Just because you draw the line in, I don't like to bring attention to my numbers, doesn't mean everybody feels the same way. And it doesn't mean it's right or wrong for them to do it. You have your own line and, and they respect that and you, they should respect your line as well. Obviously, you know, this post had 52 comments. Not everybody does the same production here. So they're going to have different approaches. I mean, do you think... Somebody who sold three houses last year is not going to like people who brag. I mean, 
wouldn't that almost be a socialistic component to the business if that's how it worked? If nobody talked about their numbers, who's going to come out better in that scenario? The people with low numbers. And who's going to come out worse? The people with high numbers. Now, I'm not saying I go on Facebook and talk about my numbers. I'm not saying Joe should talk about his numbers. But but there is a balanced approach to this is, is what I'm saying. I think there's one difference in what you said that I didn't really touch on. When you're in front of buyers that are sort of trying to learn more about you or when you're in front of sellers who are considering to list with you, that's different. I'm going to tell them I'm an open book, completely transparent. They can find out how many homes I sold. They can have a list of references. The whole Marianne, what I'm talking about are the people running around town with megaphones, you know, saying, hey, I did $23 million closed sales last year. That's what I don't like. And if we're too close to the business and don't really notice it going on, then let's just switch it to like the people on Facebook who are like all about politics and they're just force feeding everybody their views and opinions. So I'm not saying that it doesn't have a place. I'm just saying let's take the megaphone out of everybody's hands and use it where it's valid. In a lot of the marketing and in a lot of social media, everybody isn't an immediate client trying to make sure that you're good at what you're doing probably less than 1%. So let's not be so forward and direct the conversation to the appropriate audience rather than just blasting it out all the time. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. It does. Here's where I'll challenge you a little bit on that. What is our product, Joe? It's us. It's our service, right? That's right. Like we, we, This is Street of Dreams week, right? So these and and Tucker can relate to this as a Street of Dreams builder. So these these builders spent the last year of their life, blood, sweat and tears, probably a lot, a lot of the year, seven days a week working on this now beautiful, amazing product that they get to showcase for the world. Okay, do we ever have anything like that as realtors? Our product really, at the end of the day, I mean, granted, you could. there's an argument that we brokered houses, but really, we didn't build those houses. We didn't create those houses. So really, our product is our service. It's the experience we create. And the experience, if you were going to show that experience, one way to show that would be the numbers. I mean, it really is kind of the only way. So again, I'm and, and I'm with you. I don't think it needs to be a trumpet. I don't think it needs to be a megaphone. But I don't think there's a shame in that guy who did 23 million somehow talking about that, just like there isn't a shame in the Street of Dreams builder going, hey, I worked my ass off on this house and I'm proud of it because the guy who did 23 million worked his ass off to get do that 23 million. And the only thing he can show the world is that number, in my opinion. Well, so. It sometimes helps to make a dumb analogy to prove a point. Let's say there's a heart surgeon and there's 365 days in a year and in a year's time he performed 300 heart surgeries and he only killed 200 people, right? You know, it, it so what? You could take a short sale realtor and, and they could close 70 homes in a year, but everybody hates them. And the correspondence is terrible. So sheer volume of number of units or number of 
your volume number doesn't really tell you much. It's the overall satisfaction level, which needs to be taken into consideration as well. I totally agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. However, I would venture there is an indirect correlation between how much business you're doing and how happy your clients are in the form of referrals, repeat clients, reviews online. In this day and age, people, if you're not doing a good job, it's going to haunt you online. That's just the reality. Maybe that wasn't the case 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. I recall, you know, I don't remember in the mortgage industry having reviews online, but they're out there today. And if people are running around just slop sticking deals together and, and, and saying, oh, you're a paycheck to me, it's going to catch up with you in the form of negative reviews, which will ultimately slow down your business. So I think there is an indirect correlation. It's not an absolute correlation because I think there may be exceptions and people who do a lot of business and don't do a great job of it. Who comes readily to mind on that is the REO agents, because I think they view their customer as the big banks that they work with. So they're protecting that relationship, but everybody else on the other side of the transaction is just getting treated like horse manure. And that one, I feel like they have a, an anomaly situation where they can give really bad service to a lot of people, yet still stay really busy. And that's really unfortunate. And, but yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Uh, the REO point, it's a good one, Steve, because I've dealt with that firsthand for many, many years. I'm going to kind of sum up both of what your guys' opinions are. I think I agree with both of you. I think it boils down to self-awareness. Self-promotion is an art, right? And there's a right time to promote different aspects of what you do and how much you've done. And I think having that self-awareness component for those of us that have it, and there's a lot of people that have zero or negative self-awareness, it seems like, but if you have it- And some of them run for president. Yeah. (laughs) Know when to pull out that, you know, like you make the analogy of that club in your golf bag, right? You know when to pull it out and use it to further your business. And what I've noticed is as people become more successful, they know when to pull that club out. LeBron James knows when to talk about his stats and when not to, like to to Joe's point. It's usually the people that are on the front end of their climb up the ladder of success that have less self-awareness in regards to, if I post a commission check online and beat my chest and tell everybody how great and how cool I am, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are farther up the climb going, dude, what are you doing? And then there's going to be people that aren't making any money going, I hate that MF or whatever. You know, that's just you're going to alienate people. And that comes down to self-awareness. And generally, as you get older and wiser, your self-awareness should get greater and greater. And I think that's really what it comes down to. You have to know when to pick and choose, you know, what parts of you and your business to promote and who to promote them to in order to further your business. And I agree with that. And there was there was many posts in there. I loved one expression that said, Oh, gosh, it said um, a piggy bank that is half full makes a lot more noise than one that is full. Love that expression. Basically, there's a tendency for people, the people who are doing really, really well, oftentimes don't need to talk about it. Now, occasionally it does come up. It, you know, you're in a listing interview and they're like, hey, what, what, how many homes have you sold in this area or how many homes did you sell last year? And it, it's important for you to do that. But yeah, from my experience, and this was this was a common thread throughout this discussion, those who are doing the most trumpeting tend to not be the ones that should be or that are that are doing the most production. Oftentimes, it's the ones that are more insecure and and really, you know, groveling for business that feel the need to overcompensate for that. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we exhausted all the topics and we did it in under an hour. 
Congratulations, <laughs> gentlemen. Nice work. We're getting good at this. <laughs> so uh, any parting thoughts, Steve, before we uh, wrap up? Or Joe? You know, I think we, uh, although it isn't in the forefront, I think we agree on just about everything that we talked about today. It's just we're kind of saying the same thing from different angles, I think. I think it's a great podcast. I think we had great topics. And I'm a little guilty of not reading every single comment. My favorite is probably the piggy bank one you just told me about. I do like that. That's uh, that a good quote. It's point. in there. It's in there. You know, I if, probably if you got kudos to whoever said it. And yeah, and if, find that. Give them kudos. But if you got the stuff, you don't have to run around with your megaphone telling everybody. So that was kind of my point. And maybe uh, that'll be the uh, the title of the episode: Best of Masters, and then uh, the piggy bank quote, right? Jody <laughs> Wood. Jody, Jody Wood. Wood said, a half-full piggy bank makes more noise than a full one. Very, very good. And then one last parting thought, guys. Don't be surprised if you wake up tomorrow morning and there's like 20 directionals in your front yard each. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I bet I know who they'll be from. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the name will be on them, so it'll be pretty easy. Yes, yes, that's what I mean. So, And regardless of your profession, I want a referral fee from you. That's right. So that's the summation of today's episode. So, oh, and Excellent. make sure to go post your commission checks on your personal Facebook wall immediately. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great week, guys. Forty-six. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.